Welcome back to the Lou Perez Podcast. My name is Lou Perez. If you want to support the show, please head over to theloupereze.locals.com and join the Lou Perez community on locals.com. And be sure to follow me on all social media at theloupereze. Here we go. Hey guys, I'm really excited uh, for this guest. His name is uh, Corey DeAngelis. And I've been a, a fan of his on, I think, Twitter probably started. And um, one of the great things about Twitter is that every now and then you could, you know, DM somebody and they actually get back to you. So I'm uh, so happy that uh, Corey has agreed to uh, step into the Lupera Zoom zone. And we're going to uh, be talking about um, stuff that... It, that uh, we're going to be talking about stuff that we're both interested in. Cool. What an awful introduction, Corey. I'm so sorry that I did that to you, but uh, maybe you could help out. Maybe you could tell the audience a little bit about yourself and, and uh, what you're up to these days. Hey, hey, thanks so much for having me, Lou. I'm uh, happy to talk to you. And that was a great introduction. Uh, but uh, just a little bit of additional background. I'm the uh, director of school choice at the Reason Foundation, a libertarian think tank, uh, executive director at the Educational Freedom Institute, a think tank that uh, specializes in school choice. And I'm also an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, another uh, libertarian leaning uh, think tank. Um, And yeah, my work is mostly on something that most people call school choice, which could be uh, charter schools or magnet schools or private school voucher programs or education savings accounts. But the easier way to kind of think about school choice, the way that I define it, is funding the student instead of the institution. So allowing children's education dollars to follow them to wherever they're getting an education. And that still could be the public school that they're residentially assigned to. But if that doesn't work for them for whatever reason, I argue that they should be able to take that money to wherever they're getting an education, a charter school, private school, a homeschool option, a micro school, a pandemic pod. Um, So that's uh, where most of my work centers is on this idea of school choice. And a lot of what I do is uh, take down arguments from the other side that try to protect the public school monopoly at the expense of families. And in fact, since we're, since I, you gave me the floor for a second, I have a new book, uh, co-edited volume that's uh, co-edited with the uh, Cato Institute's Neil McCluskey. It's called School Choice Myths, Setting the Record Straight on Education Freedom. It just came out recently on Amazon, if you want to check that out. Yeah, congratulations. Uh, and what do, you, what do you think is probably one of the, the biggest misconceptions with school choice? Because, look, I, you know, anyone listening to this, um, you know, they, they know the organiz- organizations that, that, you, you know, that you mentioned, the think tanks and all that. They probably know that I'm a small L lib- libertarian. So for me, it, for me, it's sort of like a no-brainer where it, I'm, I'm like, oh, well, giving parents the option to send their kid to whatever school they want. For me, that seems like, oh, okay, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Um, but yeah, what, what do you think it's so hard to, um, you know, get that message across? Or- well, because monopolies like to stay monopolies. And so the, the main criticism of school choice uh, really shows you what the other side cares about. They'll say, well, school choice defunds the public schools or school choice takes away money from the public schools. And you can see their focus on the institution and protecting that monopoly. Uh, my quick response to school choice defunds public schools is that, well, if you're, ask, if you're saying that, well, then you got to ask yourself, why do you believe giving families a choice would lead to the defunding of public schools? The answer to that is they understand that families are not satisfied with the product that they're getting in the traditional public school system, and they would leave in droves when given the option. That's a great argument for school choice, but my second response to that is that School choice doesn't defund public schools. Public schools defund families. School choice programs just return that money to the hands of the rightful owners. You would similarly never hear someone, it would be absolutely ridiculous for someone to say that allowing families to choose their grocery store defunds Walmart or defunds Safeway. You'd never hear that because everybody understands that that money isn't meant for any particular institution. It doesn't belong to Walmart. It belongs to the family. And mm-hmm. so the, you never hear that with, with the grocery store market. You never hear it with uh, Pell Grants at the higher education level or the GI Bill um, uh, or pre-K programs. So I would similarly argue that, look, this, this funding is supposed to be for educating the child that should follow them to wherever they're getting an education. It's not supposed to be for propping up and protecting uh, a government monopoly. And then 
third, I have to, I have to really take down the myth because this is the biggest one. But the third response I have is that public schools, although they're funded based on enrollment counts, they're only partially funded based on enrollment counts. So like in Texas, for example, about two thirds of the funding is based on the amount of students that you have in the public schools. Mathematically, what that means is when you lose some students, you financially benefit on a per pupil basis. You end up with more money per child left behind. Just imagine if you left Walmart and started trade, uh, shopping at Trader Joe's and Walmart got to keep 20 to 30% of your funding each week for groceries that they're not providing to you. Walmart would be happy about that. And I similarly argue that the public schools should be happy that they get to keep a lot of money even after students leave them to a school choice program or to a private school or to a charter school or if they pull their children out for a homeschool option. So yeah, that's a- uh, Yeah, maybe, um, no, and, and thank you for, you know, giving, um, um, you know, s- sort of giving the cliff notes. Um, we still want people to buy your book, all right? So there are more words in the book um, that, that go into this. You know, on the, on the, the first um, argument that, that you make, the idea of, you know, if your school is great, you don't have to worry about, you know, parents taking their kids out of the school. And um, I was uh, born and raised in New York City. I went to public school all the way from pre-K to eighth grade. And then in high school, I went to a, um, a private a Catholic school on Long Island. And the reason why I went to a private Catholic school on Long Island was because I wanted to play ice hockey. Like that was the reason why. Very stupid reason. I'm not <laughs> a, I didn't, I didn't end up playing, you know, college hockey or anything like that. But I was, um, uh, you know, I was in a position where I was able to go uh, to uh, to this Catholic high school, um, and, it, and it wasn't that that expensive of a private school, which I think, for the most part, Catholic schools don't seem to be that expensive. But my experience in public schools, like, I was so lucky to have the teachers that I had. I'm, I'm 38 years old, so I don't know if maybe there's a new batch of teachers where I sort of got. I don't know, like, um, it, what, what decade has like the best teachers? But I remember uh, from pre-K on, my kindergarten teacher, Miss Lee, my first grade teacher, Miss Jose, and second grade, Mr. Cohen, third grade, um, uh, third grade was Miss Rearer, then Miss Levinson, then Mrs. Arcario, and all. And I was so lucky to have these fantastic teachers. Where you know, if I were given a choice, or my parents were given a choice on where to send their kids. They'd be like, oh yeah, we, we want them to stay in this school. And in the sixth grade, I went, to, um, I went to a magnet school. I was in a magnet program. And it's so weird um, hearing these, these discussions about school choice because it seems like not only are people against school choice, but at least in New York City, they're also against magnet schools. And <laughs> yeah, I'm like, and magnet what? schools are government run too. Yeah, and I'm like, what, what's, going on? what's going on there? Because you, you often have to correct people and say, you know, uh, charter schools are public schools. Um, yeah, charter schools are public schools. Um, magnet schools are public schools by definition. Charter schools are not government run, though, like magnet schools mm-hmm. and traditional schools. So I think that's why people, and they're less likely to be unionized than the government run schools. So I think that's why people have beef with charter schools uh, more so than they have beef with magnet schools and traditional schools. I mean, this also reminds me of how people will say that public schools take all comers. Uh, The traditional public schools don't. They uh, discriminate on the basis of zip code. They expel students. They uh, sometimes will send children to private schools after admitting that they cannot deal with their their special needs, for example. Magnet schools, like like the one you attended, and I attended a magnet school too in in high school in Texas, have uh, selective admissions. Right. Um, and I think they should be able to have those selective admissions. But you, but the other side always says, oh, public schools take all comers. It's just not true when you look at stuff like magnet schools and traditional schools. Charter schools, on the other hand, in most states in general, must take all comers. And if, if they don't have enough seats, they need to use random lottery to determine who gets in. That's not the case with the magnets uh, in all cases. And it's not the case with the traditional schools that discriminate on the basis of zip code. So, yeah, I mean, you, you had the chance to go to a private school. It's great. I attended government-run schools all through K-12, through so that, that might be, um, if I make any mistakes on this podcast, I, I blame that. But yeah, I did could, get to go to the magnet you. school uh, for, for, for uh, ninth and, and, grade. And also, you, you, um, for anyone who follows you on Twitter, you do make it a point to call it government schools rather than, uh, rather than, than public schools. And, I, um, and c- considering that, that how much importance language plays on you know, not only in literal discussions because we communicate with language, but also how much weight and um, uh, how much uh, good or damage 
the right words can use, you know, to, you know, uh, to an argument, well, you know. Well, they're not public in any meaningful sense of the word. I mean, I just pointed out that they, they're not available to everyone. If you don't live in the right, if you don't live in a rich area, you may not be able to get your way into a fancy public school that's the highest rated in your state. There's actually been families that have gone to jail for trying to get their children into better, quote unquote, public schools by lying about their addresses on their application forms. There's people that have been uh, fined for this and, and gotten in trouble through the legal system for doing this. So they're not open to the public at like a public park would be where you can just walk by and, and, and access the park if, uh, if it's open. Um, and, and they're not and, and public goods they, At some point they kick you out. It's like, and hey, they can kick you out. Hey, like, or, or, or like, hey, you know what? You're 24. You can't be in the fifth grade, man. Like, this is not, you know. Uh, so, so they're not, they're not like public in that sense, but they're not public goods either from the economic standpoint. They're uh, excludable and rivalrous in consumption. So it's based on the basic economic definition, not public goods. But I think government school is more accurate for a lot of reasons. One, they're not public in any meaningful sense, but they're also run by the government, they're regulated by the government, they're funded by the government, they are residentially assigned by the government, they're compelled by the government through compulsory education laws. Government school is a much more accurate term than uh, public school, so I think uh, that's important to point out. Something else, um, what I think is interesting here, you know, you pointed out er earlier that there's, it's, it's kind of hard to get school choice, right, because there's a monopoly that exists. What's interesting to, to point out, and, and one of the reasons why I like to describe school choice as funding the student instead of the institution, because now the other side, to respond to that, they, they're on defense. They need to explain to you why you should fund the institution instead of the student. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really hard for them to do that, especially when people who support funding students directly when it comes to pre-K and higher education all of a sudden aren't for that when it comes to K through 12. So a lot of people are for Pell Grants, for example, the money goes to the student and you can choose a public or private university of your choosing. With pre-K programs, the money goes to the family and the family can choose a public or private provider of pre-K services. And a lot of the people who support those things for some reason are really upset about it and, and fight against it when it comes to K through 12. And I think the only reason that you can explain this, this, uh, apparent inconsistency is that there's a monopoly and entrenched special interest that profits from getting your money regardless of the decision that you make when it comes to K through 12. And you don't have that same power dynamic when it comes to higher ed and pre-K because the norm in higher ed and pre-K is you already have a high degree of choice. Mm -hmm. But with K through 12, they already get your money and they want to keep that money. Um, so I think it's really important to point out those inconsistencies and think about food stamps too. And by the way, I'm not, I'm not saying that Pell Grants are, are, are great and I'm not saying pre-K programs are great. I'm just saying if the money does exist in the system, it should go to people instead of institutions. Food stamps, for example, we don't tell low-income families that they must use their taxpayer-funded food stamps at residentially assigned groceries, government grocery stores. We send that money to the families and they can choose Walmart, Whole Foods, Trader Joe's. Yeah. All I'm saying is that if the money is to be allocated, it should go to people instead of systems. Yeah, and, and we should and do the same thing with K through 12. And, and, you know, there was a time when it, when it comes to like food stamps where there was a thing like government cheese, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, uh, you know, thankfully, um, you know, I think those kinds of programs are no longer around and people are actually able to, you know, use the, their EBT cards and, and all that to, to go shop where, um, where they want to shop, you know, a, a couple of things that that always come up anytime we talk about. I hear I hear discussions about um, school choice. One of them is um, is creaming, and the other one, the other argument that I've I've heard a lot is that oh, the reason why um, education, public education, or government run uh, education is is so expensive is because of uh, they accept special needs kids, and charter schools don't. Uh, or the charter schools have a right not to uh, to do that. Can you uh, talk about those and two things? Charter schools are uh, have to, have to have random admissions, so it is true that they could expel students that have behavioral problems or, or whatnot, and they should have the right to do that. But look, public schools do it too. Public schools have expulsions. Public school uh, traditional public schools, uh, district run schools, uh, discriminate on the basis of zip code. Uh, charter schools are actually more public than traditional public schools in that they do have random admissions, whereas the public school, the traditional public schools don't. 
that's one response. But then also charter schools are less likely to label kids as having special needs. So even if you look at the average kind of percentages, even if the charter school sector in your state does indeed look like it has fewer special needs students and, and English language learner students, for example, they're much less likely to label those children as, as such. And therefore that skews the data. And it also, um, it also means that they're more inclusive of these types of students. And a random assignment study recently found this uh, in January, 2020, it came out at Education Next. They looked at students who randomly won the lottery to attend a charter school in Boston versus the children who lost the lottery to attend the charter school in Boston. And since random assignment was used, we can be pretty sure this is the effect of gaining access to a charter school and not you know, any, any selection bias. And what they found were that the students in the, that were previously uh, labeled as having a special need or uh, English language learner status were a lot less likely to retain that status if they access the charter school, mm-hmm. which suggests that the charter schools are more inclusive. And look, I, I would argue that the, the public, the traditional public schools cost so much money uh, just because they have bad incentives to, to spend that money wisely. Look, in the United States since 1960, we've increased inflation-adjusted per-people education expenditures by 280%. We've nearly doubled that spending number per pupil in public schools since 1980, and it's increased by uh, around 40% since 1990. So every single decade, we throw more and more money at the problem and get the, essentially the same results each decade. And it's not that the students are becoming more problematic. Uh, there's no reason to believe that the students are somehow different than they were uh, you know, uh, two decades ago. Um, in a lot of the ways, we've become more advantaged over time uh, when, it, you know, when it comes to having more people with higher levels of education, more people with higher uh, income levels, so in, in a sense, I, you know, I, I don't accept that, that argument that uh, it's just that the students are different. Um, yeah, I, and then if you look at like one good example of this is in D.C. where I live, they have something called the D.C. Voucher Program. And this serves low-income students. The average household income is around $27,000, students using this program. And it's, um, it's, it's, we're in a high cost of living area over here. So it's a disadvantaged group. And I think uh, 95% of the students are uh, identified as black or Hispanic students. And the latest experiment on this random assignment study, you you can't say that the students are at any different because random assignment determines who got access to the program and who who ended up going to the public schools. They found no effects on test scores, uh, math or reading test scores after three years, but they found huge positive effects on safety as reported by the student, satisfaction as reported by the student, and attendance for a third of the cost. So the public schools in D.C. get over $31,000 per child. The voucher students only get around $10,000 per child, and they still got the same academic outcomes and much better uh, non-academic outcomes. Yeah, I was, you know, and, and that was something that, that, um, that I've been thinking about when it comes to, you know, um, there, when it comes to your experience in, in school, so much of it goes beyond just how well you can do on a test or, you know, whether uh, how you know, high rank, uh, highly ranked the the college you go to is or something like that. You know, so much of it, I think, comes down to you have these, you have these, you know, people, especially impoverished people living in these uh, neighborhoods and sending their kids to school where there, where there's disruption, you know, where there's fights, where there's danger there. And all you need is if you have a class of 30 kids, all you need is one or two, you know, frankly, assholes to ruin it for everybody else. So even if it is something where, um, like you send your kid to a, to a charter school and he or she is kind of, you know, testing at the same level, but you know what? They actually, uh, feel safe being in the pro be, uh, being in the school. I mean, that's something I think to be, you know, um, to be applauded as well. Yeah. And the, the evidence on school choice and academic outcomes tends to be in favor of school choice programs and charter schools, despite them getting a lot less money per child. But when you start looking at the non-academic outcomes, like uh, reductions in criminal activity, reductions in teen pregnancies, improvements in satisfaction and attendance and behavioral outcomes, that's much more positive. And the unions don't like to talk about this because the non-academic outcomes are super positive when it comes to uh, getting access to school choice. And that's not all that uh, surprising to me because when you ask families, why do you do you, to, you know, choose to, to go to this school over that school? They talk about things like safety. They talk about things like culture. They don't say that standardized test scores is, is the thing that they're choosing schools based on. So mm-hmm. 
Um, that the evidence is more favorable for non-academic outcomes makes a lot of sense to me as well. I, I want to point out really quickly, I think school choice is more important now than ever because the schools aren't even opening in, in so yeah. many places. Yeah, I was, was going to ask you about that. Like, how is, uh, yeah, they're, they're not opened. Um, teachers, I guess for the most part are in teaching. I mean, I, you know, I might be, might not be up on this, but I remember seeing um, things like, yeah, a, a teacher, if they're comfortable um, teaching, um, you know, uh, uh, doing remote learning, they could do that or they can choose to, you know, to not do that. And are, are they being, are, are teachers still being paid even if they're not teaching? Oh, of course, of course they're still being paid. And that's why you see them fighting to remain closed. Whereas you're not seeing that in the private sector. Think about it. In the private sector, private schools, daycares, restaurants, uh, grocery stores, they've all either been open for a long time or they're fighting against the governments to try to reopen, whereas the public schools are fighting to remain closed. And it's not because the people are different in the sector. It's not that you have good people in the private sector and bad people in the public sector. I think it's more of an issue of incentives. Mm -hmm. One of these sectors gets your money regardless of how well they meet the needs of individual families. Just imagine if your local grocery store got the same amount of money from you each week, despite reopening despite the fact that they didn't reopen their doors and they didn't provide you with groceries. They would have a much different incentive when it comes to reopening their doors than they do today. In fact, it's rational for schools to keep their doors closed from a cost-benefit decision-making standpoint because they keep their doors closed, they get the benefits that are about the same, they, get, they keep their jobs, they get the same paycheck each week, but the, their job requirement, work requirements go down a lot, their commute times go down, any semblance of risk goes down uh, even more. So from a basic cost-benefit incentive framework, it's actually rational for them to fight to remain closed. But I think this is why uh, we're seeing a different uh, reaction from the public school system than we are anywhere else. And the public schools uh, should be less likely to, um, uh, to have a risk of the virus than places like grocery stores or other locations because with schools you're dealing with younger populations of, of customers, essentially. Mm -hmm. Yet, they're the last things to reopen. If you look at edu you know, Education Week's data on this, the most recent reporting that I saw from the largest 100 school districts in the U.S., three out of every four are not reopening with any in-person instruction available to any families at all. So wow. for a large part, they're just not opening. And of course they're doing that because they still get your money. They still, they still my, get to keep their jobs. My, my mother-in-law, she... Um, She's a, I believe it's like a, like a teacher's aide. She, she works with a lot of, um, with uh, kids with ADHD and, and autism and that. And um, the prospect of her doing that work over a computer with those kids, I mean, that's just, uh, that's just Im impossible because so much of it is about, you know, maintaining, uh, um, you know, eye contact and, and, and doing, you know, doing all these, all these different things. And even now, um, doing the work with, um, you know, one-on-one -on -one with a kid and having like a mask on, that makes it, uh, you know, a, a struggle too. And it, it just seems like, you know, teaching it, to, you know, I, I, I hate when people say that, like, you know, those who can't teach, you know, because mm -hmm. I've, I've had just some amazing teachers throughout my whole life, whether it's in grammar school, high school, um, at the university level as well. And it's like, you know, teaching is a real art. It's a real vocation. And, and it's something where, uh, I, I don't. I, I don't think you just uh, like. There's a one size fits all, um, you know, sort of thing. And and I, I think as we're, as we're seeing now, I think a lot of parents are you know sort of coming to grips with or just realizing what it is that their that their their kids need and how you know the norm is no longer you know going to be satisfactory for them. Yeah, I just you know the the way that I like to think about this with the school reopening debate is that you know if your grocery store doesn't reopen, you can take your money elsewhere. If your school doesn't reopen, you should similarly be able to take your children's education dollars elsewhere. I think it just makes so much sense that even if you're using food stamps, if your local Walmart doesn't reopen, you don't have to continue paying them. You can just go somewhere else. So you don't have like a huge national debate about whether a particular grocery store opens or not, like yeah. we do with the public school system. We have this whole national debate about schools, whether they should reopen or not. And I actually think individual districts should be able to make this decision on their own and teachers should be able to make the decision on their own whether they want to come back to work or not. But families need a choice too. We need decision decisions being able to be made on at every step of the way, not just with the producers and the employees in the system. The families uh, need a choice too. And I like how you point out that um, you know not all teachers are bad, and 
Uh, yeah, there are a lot of great teachers in the system, but I think the unions are making them look bad by fighting against reopening. The unions are um, pouring into the streets and and and, and including political demands uh, tied to reopening. Like yeah. they're calling to defund the police, for example. Uh, the Los Angeles Teachers Union had a report on safely reopening, but then they added all these other weird things like defunding the police and um, banning charter schools, banning their competition, which just really, I think they overplayed their hands now That now because now people are, you know, they may have a bad uh, opinion of teachers, which that's not fair to the teachers either, right? right? And I think school choice would actually do a lot to benefit teachers in that uh, if the unions are calling for policies that aren't benefiting individual teachers. And if you just look at the data on this, from 1992 to 2014 in the U.S., inflation-adjusted per people education expenditures went up by 27%, but real teacher salaries actually dropped by 2%. And it's because mm. it's a monopoly. They don't have a strong incentive to spend the money wisely, and the best way to spend that money wisely is in the classroom on the teachers. So the, when the teachers are complaining about having to buy their own supplies and how they're not making enough money, they kind of have a point. But the problem isn't competition. The problem is the school system not having any meaningful incentive to spend that money on them. And it, just look at the administrative bloat from 2000 to 2017 in the U.S. and in, in the public school system. Real, uh, or uh, I don't have to adjust for inflation, so I don't even have to say real here. This are, these are people, it's not dollars. But hmm. uh, the number of students in the system increased by 7%. The number of teachers in the system increased by 8%. But the number of uh, principals and assistant principals increased by about 30, 33%. And the number of administrators increased over 10 times the rate of the increase in students by 75%. So they're throwing more and more people into the system, which is good for union bosses because they get more political power by having more employees and a larger voting block. And they have uh, stronger, uh, more union dues because mm -hmm. of more people in the system. And that yeah. benefits the union bosses, but not the individual teachers. Yeah. It, I've, uh, I've seen that happen a lot when it comes to uh, higher education, where, um, when I was, uh, I went to grad school at, at city college uh, of New York and I was an adjunct lecturer and, um, you didn't get paid very much to be, to be an adjunct lecturer. Um, and it seems to be like one of these things where there are all these administrators, you know, getting these really, you know, cushy salaries. And there was a constant, you know, uh, lack of a well-paid or, you know, or, or teachers who could make it, you know, just by, by teaching courses. And I felt my heart went out to, you know, so many people who were in the program with me where it was like, if they didn't get say that third teaching class, they lost healthcare. Yeah, they they lost their their health insurance, and it's like, um, you know, so many people, at least in, you know, on the college level, the professors, were, you know, tenured professors were kind of holding on to those positions, um, not opening it up for others. And then you ask, well, where you know, where's the money going? Um, and I think that I think that I think that's a thing too, where it's sort of like, um, I know. Uh, you know, school choice, you know, depending on who hears it, it's a, you know, it's a bad word, but I think, I think there's a way to be much more effective when you actually say like, no, here's where the dollars are going. Like it is fucked up. Like if, you know, we often hear teachers aren't, aren't paid enough, teachers aren't paid enough. And it's like, well, 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 whatever you think about that, it's like, well, here's where the money is going. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like, that's where you can get, bring the money over to the teachers. Yeah, and a lot of people will say that school choice is anti-public school teacher, but as I just said, the public school system isn't treating them right, and competition would actually benefit the labor market, the employees in the labor market. Labor com competition in the market for goods and services is good for uh, people who are purchasing products and so the families, but competition in the labor market is great for the employees, so teachers should be super happy about school choice and labor market competition, especially when you look at, there's five studies that I know of on the topic that finds that when school choice competition comes into play through either charter schools or private school choice programs, all five of these studies find statistically significant positive effects on the teacher's salaries in the public schools because the public schools start to scratch their heads a little bit and they say, oh, well, we're losing some, some, some of our students and we might lose some of our talent. We better start paying them a little more so that we can actually compete. And so each of these studies that I've seen on this topic find the almost counterintuitive result just based on what you hear from the unions that mm -hmm. public school teacher salaries go up in response to school choice competition. And there's actually 
28 studies that look at the effects of these school choice programs and their competition on the public schools, 26 of the 28 studies find statistically significant positive effects of private school choice competition on the students who remain in the public school system. So it's like kind of this rising tide that lifts all boats. Mm-hmm. And it really, you don't even have to use the programs to benefit from these programs because of competitive pressures. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, um, something, I mean, something that I've been thinking about just in a more general, you know, just as a more general matter is, you know, for one, you know, how do we measure uh, whether or not a, a teacher is a good teacher, right? And because, you know, th- you know <laughs> how do you measure that? But then also it's sort of like, what is it that we consider being educated? You know, what are the goals of an education? Because um, as someone who's gone to college, who, you know, went to grad school, I got a MF, Master of Fine Arts in, in Creative Writing. There were quite a few classes I took where I was like, this is, this is some bullshit. Like, what, what, what am I even, you know, you know, what are we learning here? Like, what is, what does it mean to be, to be educated? Um, and I don't think that's something that we could even, you know, sort of, it doesn't seem like as a country, anyone can, can agree on that. No, and that's a great argument for choice because you could be one teacher that, that is great, a great match for a particular student and, and is really good at mobilizing that student to become interested in whatever they're, they're trying to teach, but they may not uh, be a good fit for other students. So because quality is not one dimensional, because there's so many different dimensions to what it means to be a good teacher and to be a good school, that's why we should allow individual students to sort based on these preferences. And I mean, just think about it with restaurants. You know, I, I may like this restaurant that's next door to me here in DC and Lou, you might think it's, it's trash. Right. And, and, and one way that we kind I of do. have a, I, whatever, have a whatever restaurant you like, I don't like. Yeah. I don't even know what I'm pointing to out the window here, but uh, <laughs> you know, we have differences in preferences and that's a great argument for choice. A one size fits all education model is not going to work for every student. And a lot of people will say that school choice is anti-public school for some reason. And some people may have those feelings about public school, but I argue that, you know, it's, it's not actually anti-public school. It's just pro-choice. Like, Allowing people to choose their grocery store is an anti-Safeway. It's just, I want to have the choice. I may actually like Safeway, right? But I don't think people should be forced to, to, to attend one particular institution over another. Same thing with the education system. You know, the public school system might be great for a ton of students, but for that one student where it's not a good match they should be able to pick something else. And mm-hmm. the public school system shouldn't be able to force them into that one size fits on, all. On, um, on Twitter, you, you, you often get into a lot of, a lot of beefs with, um, with current, you know, current or retired teachers. Yeah. Um, and um, you're someone, you don't need um, any, uh, any backup or someone to, to stick up for you because you, you, know, you fight your own battles and you, and you do it really well. But the few times that I've, <laughs> that I've uh, dipped my toe in there, uh, the one thing that I always say is, you know, um, you know, I would very much like parents to have a choice on whether or not they want you educating their kid, you know, uh, you know, because uh, for a lot of, you know, for a lot of people, look, let's, you know, let's be real. Twitter does bring out the worst in a lot mm-hmm. of people. Um, and so I can't, you know, judge people fully just based on, on the, um, on the, uh, the garbage they leave behind on their, on their timeline. But, you know, some of these people are, are purported, you know, supposed teachers, and I'm like, damn, I would really be upset if my kid was, you know, learning from someone with a fucking, you know, uh, hammer and sickle on their, you know, on their Twitter account. Um, yeah, it's strange that they, uh, some of them like being able to, you know, force your child to, to go to their classrooms. Why, why would you want to force people to do that? You, you, you should be happy to be able to and have confidence in your own teaching abilities to, uh, understand that when given the choice, families would still pick your your school. So yeah, I mean that's one of the big things here. But another thing is, they'll either admit that, oh yeah, you know, I, I think people would choose my school. It's you're right, or uh, they'll pivot to something else. But what's worse is some pe- some of these people will actually uh, say the quiet part out loud, and they'll say, well, you know, these are low income families we're talking about. They may not know that that. Uh, my my classroom is actually better than the private school classroom. Yeah. They might they might not be smart enough to pick. They don't uh, the know what's best for. Yeah, they, they don't know, know what's, what's best better. for their own children, which is absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, very Even low income families in general have more information and incentives to get the decision right when it comes to a whole host of uh, different uh, 
goods and services for their children, in, including education. You don't have to be a doctor to pick your child's doctor. You don't need to be a mechanic to pick uh, what car dealership you want to shop at. You don't need to be a dentist to pick your child's dentist. You don't need to be a nutrition expert to pick your grocery store. You look up things really quickly online. You look at the ratings. Uh, you can make these decisions for yourself. And, and if you do make a bad decision, it, you know, it's hard to define what a bad decision looks like. You should have the power and liberty to make those decisions. But in general, families are going to make a lot better decisions than bureaucrats sitting in offices a hundred, you know, hundreds and hundreds of miles away. Yeah. And it's just absolutely paternalistic for the other side to make this argument. Usually they don't, but sometimes they do. And, and, I, and, I, think, and I think now, I think, I think parents are, are, are just armed with more information as well. I went, when I was a kid, um, it was, uh, I grew up in, in Woodside, uh, Woodside, Queens, and it was... I lived across the street from PS 151. So I went to PS 151 and, until I, I went to that magnet program for, for sixth grade. And then we moved to Little Neck. Uh, uh, and then I went to the public school over there. And like, you know, outside of my parents asking, like, you know, did you do your homework? You know, they really weren't, you know, in, you know involved. And there wasn't, you know, the internet wasn't around, at least not in, in the way that it, that it is today. Whereas now I feel like, you know, Parents, even you know, uh, you know, even parents of of humble means, they do have you know uh, knowledge at their uh, at their fingertips, yep. and you know, and people talk too, and it's like you know, I think I think one of the really messed up things about you know just the lottery system, it's like you know the idea that you know if, if you live on the same floor in, a, in an apartment building and you have like two families and the one the one kid won the lotto and he gets to go to this great school and then you're stuck in this shitty school trying to survive, but you, you live next door to each other. Um, yeah. And that, that's just, I don't know. That's a, that's a heartbreak. I mean, part, part of the problem with that is that in so many cities, including New York city, the, the charter schools are funded at a what much lower amount than the traditional schools on a per pupil basis. So it's really hard. Even if a, a, uh, a charter school has high demand, it's hard for them to expand from a financial standpoint Whereas private schools, they can change their tuition, right? You can increase your tuition amounts and that'll get rid of these shortages. It's essentially when demand exceeds the supply of seats. Uh, in the private sector, you can change your price. Whereas the charter schools, they just accept whatever the state per pupil funding amount is. And it's often a lot less than what the traditional schools get. I think in DC, it's about half of what the traditional schools get. In like places like Little Rock, Arkansas, it's also about half of what the uh, traditional schools get everywhere across the country that I've looked in most places, the charter schools get a lot less money. And I don't see why that's the case. I mean, I, I can see how, why it's a politically smart move to do it that way, because then you could say, Oh, well, look, we're, we're saving the state money by, you know, expanding school choice. And that kind of mm -hmm. makes it more politically palatable. But why should a student, if the public school isn't working for them, be penalized and that they only get a fraction of the the state education dollars that they would have gotten. Shouldn't a hundred percent of the money follow you what, to what, where, wherever what, sector you go to? Um, what percentage of of schools, like you know, talk about like like grammar schools or like that, are uh, are charters? You know, yeah. Like so, what, yeah. Uh, out of the uh, public schools in the U.S., or out of all school aged population in the U.S., about six percent of students are in public charge. Charters. Six percent. Oh, um, um, you dropped out for a little bit. Oh, can, can you hear me now? Yeah. 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 So about uh, school age population overall in the United States, about 6% uh, are enrolled in public charter schools. And public charter schools started in 1990 in the U.S. Um, so they've been around around three decades and they've gone, you know, obviously from around 0% of the school age population to 6% and uh, a pretty uh, short amount of time. And most states do have charter school laws on the books. I think about 45 states do currently allow for public charter schools. Um, uh, it's not the case with voucher programs. Only about half, I think a little bit over half of the states have uh, private school choice programs. In yeah, because I, I, remember, I remember a few years back, um, I made a video for We the Internet TV. Um, you know, it was a response video to a... Um, to something that that John Oliver did on, um, I think it was last week tonight oh, as his show, yeah. and he did a thing on on charter schools, and um, he pointed out, you know, all of these really fucked up charter schools that were, you know, I mean, it seemed for the most part they were kind of like scams, but uh, they were shut down and and they were you know done away with, and um, I forget all the details of the video and what I was you know what I was responding to, but when you when you're talking about 
something that is only, like you said, 6% of the, educa- you know, of, of, of the education happening in the country. And what you show is that the ones that are terrible have actually been shut down. You know, yeah. for one, it's like, it's like, what, what is, for one, it's like, well, the other 94%, you know, we have a pro, you know, there are problems there and it's really hard to shut down any of those of the 94%. Yeah, when a charter school underperforms, it shuts down. When a government school underperforms, it gets more money because they can lobby to the government and say, look, we're underperforming because we uh, don't have enough money. So we throw more and more money at the system year after year and get the same results. It's the definition of insanity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting anything else to change. The only way to uh, adequately uh, introduce incentives into this system and change it is to allow people to vote with their feet and introduce that bottom-up accountability. School choice is the only way that we're ever going to fix the public school system. Quadrupling the per-people spending since 1960 hasn't done anything. Every decade, pouring more money into this. You can spend $100,000 per child and still get the same outcomes if you don't spend the money wisely. And I think most people understand that. Um, that just throwing more money at a problem isn't going to fix it. Yeah. Um, and with John, you know, John Oliver's argument, yeah, I mean, uh, he, he's essentially trying to use extreme outliers and generalize that to the population. That's a horrible argument because anybody can point at the, uh, the traditional public schools and, and point at extreme outliers that don't close. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's, it's a feature of the market that bad schools close when it comes to uh, the private sector and the charter school sector. It's a great thing. Yeah. You know, um, so uh, it seems like anything I've ever read about Betsy DeVos has been just about, you know, you know, her being evil and stuff like that. And she has no business being part of the education, you know, just from a practical standpoint though. Um, I happen to think, I, I happen to be very interested in what billionaires think about education. I don't know, call me kooky, right? <laughs> but I would, I would probably venture to guess that, you know, some of the most successful people in the country, uh, or, you know, if you're a billionaire, you're one of the most successful people in human history might have some interesting insights about, education and what that and what that entails i i wonder you know it's sort of i mean billionaires are you know are you know billionaires are evil is just uh they, you know <laughs> that that's an obvious meme uh for anybody uh to to pass around but it's sort of like what is the conspiratorial you know basis of oh the billionaires they want they want school choice but to do what i mean you know <laughs> I don't know why they throw this art. It's, it's, I mean, they, they, they're going to use whatever they can to paint her as a bad person because she's threatening the public school monopoly. It's a freaking behemoth. We throw $740 billion a year at the, from the most recent data on this at the public school system. That is a ton. And that's just for K through 12 public schools in the U.S. So there's a very strong special interest that has a ton of interest in keeping the status quo the way that it is. I mean, if, if Betsy DeVos had a bad idea and if the billionaires had a bad, bad idea and, and if choice was truly a bad idea, why would millions and millions of families choose that option when given the choice? Mm-hmm. Betsy DeVos isn't forcing anybody to choose uh, another school. It's like, it's, yeah, it's like kind of this conspiratorial thinking where they think that, you know, uh, and it's just a paternalistic way of thinking that, oh, you know, uh, Betsy DeVos might be tricking people to choosing private schools. Why would she have an interest in doing that? There's no, you know, incentive for her to do that. Um, and and look, that assumes that disadvantaged families don't know what they're doing and don't know how to weigh costs and benefits and and to be able to say, look, oh, this school is better than the school that that you know that is not safe for my child. And it assumes that yeah, people can't make decisions for themselves. And I want to point out that look, I mean. This kind of argument that highlighting that DeVos is a billionaire is a way to try to paint school choice as like a, um, a, a something that leads to less equity in society. It's just that's kind of why they make these arguments. But the opposite of, is true. Rich people already have school choice. Right. Advantaged families can already afford to live near the best government-run schools, and they can live in the most expensive neighborhoods that are residentially assigned to the better public schools. Rich people can already afford to pay out of pocket for private school tuition and, and pandemic pods and, and micro schools. Disadvantaged families are stuck in the system. And so funding students directly is an equalizer in that it allows less advantaged families to seek out these opportunities as well. But the other side doesn't want to talk about that. Instead, they want to make choices for 
uh, disadvantaged families and force them into a system that doesn't have any meaningful incentive to to serve them and meet their needs adequately. They just they just tell them, oh, well, just wait another decade, you know, for the school system to get better. Just keep waiting. But family, low-income families shouldn't have to wait anymore. They should be able to take their children's education dollars now, especially since the public schools aren't even reopening. Advantaged families are, were able to start seeking out pandemic pause right when the schools uh, didn't reopen. Yeah. Why, why, you know, and, and so low-income families are the ones getting the, the, the shortest end of the stick here. And so I think that gets lost in the conversation a lot that, that school choice truly is an equalizer and arguing against it is, is essentially arguing to trap low-income families. It's not trapping the advantaged families. Yeah. Uh, about, that, about that. Um, uh, I think I, I saw a clip recently of Samantha B on her show and, and it was a short clip. I, I didn't watch the whole the whole episode, but it was a, it was a, it was a very short, unfunny clip uh, oh, where she was, was basically, painful. where she was shitting on, um, on charter schools, charter schools. And then in the, I think in the tweet itself, tar, um, charter schools, magnet schools, I think it was a joke of like, whatever that is, or however that works. How do you not know what it is? Your it, child went to a magnet school. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, and, and it's one of those things because I remember when I, when I, when I saw that bit, I remember some years back, she and her husband, Jason Jones, got into some hot water because um, there were calls about a redistricting or rezoning their schools in their neighborhood. And um, I, at least um, the husband was, you know, was against it. And I think for, for a reason that makes sense, it was, it was like, Hey, we moved to this neighborhood and we love this school and we want our kids to be in the school. And now you're asking to move the school down, you know, 16 blocks. That's, you know, that that's ridiculous. Um, but yet, I am at, but, but you know, then, you know, people were saying like, oh, you just don't want your kids to go to school with black kids and, and stuff like that, um, which I don't think uh, was the case uh, at all. But I don't think the same uh, goodwill would be given to anybody else if they were like, hey, we moved to this neighborhood because we want our kids to go to this good school. And now rezoning is messing that up for us. Yeah, and I, I don't think this is a good argument to um, have residential assignment, right? I mean, mm -hmm. if, let's let's imagine if we were residentially assigned to grocery stores and we bought a, a residence that you love uh, grocery stores. I mean, man, it's dude. it's the easiest thing because it's it's another basic need that everybody uh, you know everybody shops at grocery stores, so um, it's the it's the easiest. Uh, I, I do the analogy. Am, I, I do the uh, am, was it the uh, fresh direct uh, version? So maybe there's a fresh direct oh, yeah. uh, education out there. <laughs> But yeah, just because you buy your way into a system that is unjust doesn't mean we should keep the system that way. But what's more important here, I think, is that Samantha just released that video shitting on uh, school choice, but then she exercised school choice for her own child. And she should be able to do that, right? She, she should be able to absolutely um, try to get her child into a school with selective admissions. She should also be able to send her child to a private school if she wants, but she shouldn't fight against other uh, you know, extending school choice to less advantaged communities. So mm -hmm. uh, that makes her look pretty hypocritical. We have uh, politicians that do this all the time. Elizabeth Warren, I was most famously uh, found out that she sent her child, uh, Alex Warren, who's now in his 40s, to a private school in Austin, Texas. Uh, looked it up on Ancestry.com and figured that out. And that kind of blew up in her face because she lied to a, a voter about it on video. And then also because oh, yeah. I, I, she yeah, came out swinging that. against school choice. So yeah, like it, and, and, and I remember too, people were saying like, um, I, I don't know if it was a high profile person, but they said something ridiculous, like the children of politicians are off limits. And it's like, this dude's like 40 years old. What are you talking about? He's 40. Yeah. Get, give me he's, a break. He's not a kid now. He's, he's 40 uh, years old. And like, even if it was like a, a school age child at that time, like if you don't share the name and if you just, you know, um, if, if, if you center the conversation about the choices of the parent, it's not attacking their children. You know, I, I always make sure to say like, this is great that this politician has had this opportunity. Right. I just want other people to have that opportunity and it's not saying anything bad about uh, their children. Absolutely not. And Joe Biden similarly attended, uh, you know, private schools, sent his children to private schools, but then the Biden Sanders unity task force called to get rid of the DC voucher program, which disproportionately serves students of color and a uh, lower income families as well, but he wants to get, you know, has called in that Sanders Biden unity task force to get rid of such a program. And he's, uh, you know, uh, not a friend to school choice programs. He's called to regulate charter schools more. He's against for-profit charter schools. Um, 
Oh yeah, so that's kind yeah, of hypocritical. Yeah, that, that, on was, his end too. that, that was that, yeah. That, that's another thing where you have people you know who say that education should not be for profit. You know, so nobody should profit. And it's like, yeah, let's, it's like well, wait a minute. Let's just look at everybody who profits. For one, look, um, those teachers like like we brought like you talked about earlier who have to buy school supplies and all that. That's fucked up. They should not have to do that. They should not be you know. Uh, they should not be um, teaching at a loss. You know, the people who sell textbooks, this is like a, you know, multi-million, maybe to billion dollar uh, industry. You have uh, uh, the, uh, you know, the people who maintain uh, a school, they're making profits on, on that. Mm-hmm. It's, like, it's like, what are you talking about? Why is it? It's uh, the idea that, that if you're making a profit, that, that, that somehow that's just inherently evil. But meanwhile, we want, we, we want, I want people to profit in, in what they're yeah, doing, yeah. you know? Yeah, well, and one just a quick fact is only a uh, uh, twelve per- around twelve percent of charter schools are managed by for profit entities. No charter schools are actually for profit entities themselves, but vast majority are not for profit. But then even then, the profit itself is not a problem. It's the problem is comes with how that profit is made, and only one of these sectors profits from individuals through the use of force by forcing families to go to send their children to schools that aren't working for them. It's great when a private school profits from individual voluntary choices. It's great when a charter school profits from individual voluntary choices. The injustice is when a system through residential assignment and compulsory funding through property taxes profits from forcing children to uh, attend their schools regardless of how well they're meeting their needs. And that's in the traditional public school system the government run school system and that we don't see the same problems with that with when you have choice in the matter. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I think there are profits that emerge in the private sector uh, through crony capitalism mm-hmm. that, that is a pro you know, is a problem when you like you can, you know, force people to, to, to buy from you and, and, and essentially use the government to uh, seal your own monopoly. That's a problem, but mm-hmm. That's a problem that I, I, I'm more so am seeing with the traditional public schools, not with charters and private, because those are all voluntary selections. Yeah, you know, one thing that that's really concerning to me is, um, you uh, in the past you have fact checked big articles, you know, in big newspapers. I believe one of them was was in the Washington Post, right? And you yeah. fact check these people, and. It took them, you could tell us about, you know, what, what the specific fact check was, but, you know, just in short, it took them so long to actually correct the error, the error. It seemed like it was almost like a, you know, purposeful error that they made. And you think about it, like, like, you know, (laughs) how many people are being uh, manipulated by just fault, you know, just, just like lies. I mean, outright lies. I mean, it's, it's really easy to correct these things because it's a factual, you know, a it's supposed to be a fact-based statement that you can easily refute with with data on this. But right. uh, look, Washington Post did it. Um, I corrected New York Times too. I've cor- corrected Washington Post at least once. Um, and Philly Inquirer. But a lot of these statements are always about basic facts, like like they they say we've defunded education or that mm-hmm. we've uh, reduced per pupil education expenditures. And I think the ones that the one that you're pointing out, which was one of the most ridiculous ones was by someone who should know better. It was an opinion piece in the Washington Post by the dean of the Curry School of Education at University of Virginia, Bob Pianta. This is someone that's, this is, this is a highly educated person. It's someone at a, a dean of a education school. So this is his field too. And he made the claim that in the United States, we've reduced uh, per pupil education funding over the last few decades. There's no way that you can say that because mm-hmm. over the last few decades in, in every state and you know, no matter how you slice the data, whether it's total expenditures, total revenues, total expenditures per pupil, state level, federal level, local level, we've increased it. Oh, he didn't say last few decades. He said since the late 1980s. So any year in 1980, if you looked at this, we've increased inflation adjusted per pupil expenditures in the U.S. And you know, I emailed the editor on this. I blew it up on social media and it took them over a week to actually correct it. And a lot of that was me going back and forth with the editor because the editor was trying to find any way to spin it to yeah. make this, the statement true. And I'm like, there's no way you can spin this. Like, there's no way that you can take this statement and have it be true. And I, I showed them the data from multiple sources, different levels. There's no way that you can say that we've deep. And, but I think this is one of the problems in society 
I, well, I think it's good that we can, you know, we have social media to be able to fact check people and put public pressure on these people uh, mm-hmm. in the Washington Post and, and elsewhere. Whereas you might not have had that same pressure without things like Twitter. But this also this this misinformation. A lot, a lot of people only see the the first uh, time this comes out. They may not right. have seen the correction after eight eight days or whatever, or however long it took. And so you have things like this idea that we've defunded education for decades going viral on social media. So when people were talking about defunding the police, for example, there was, uh, and you might've seen this, that there were so many tweets that were getting hundreds of thousands of likes from small accounts that went viral because they said something, it was along the lines of this, that, you know, you guys think it's crazy that we've been, that we're calling to defund the police, Mm -hmm. but we've been essentially defunding education for decades or for years. And that's just not true when you look at the data, but yet everybody's heard it so much in the media mm-hmm. that they're just like, oh yeah, yeah, we've defunded. And in fact, if you ask people, uh, there was a national survey that just came out at Education Next on this. They just asked people, how much do you think we spend per pupil? And their national survey found that people estimated that we spend about eight, $8,500 per pupil in the US. We actually spend about double that. We spend over 15,000 per child per year. So people vastly underestimate how much we spend. They vastly underestimate how much teachers are paid. And it's because this narrative is just so, uh, and, and normal people, they just hear it and read the first thing. And if they're not super interested in the conversation, they don't get deeper into it and they don't see the, the reality behind and, and, and the a, numbers. Yeah. And, and it just, you know, it begs the question of, you know, what are kids learning in government run schools, you know, just in general, because, um, I remember, you know, hearing this argument before, you know, where it's like, uh, if you're in a public school, you're not going to have your public school teacher argue that her position should not exist. You know, it just wouldn't, it, yeah, it, it, it seems, doesn't make, it doesn't make sense for, for them to do that. I mean, it seems like a conflict of interest, right? You have the government yeah. uh, employees might have an incentive not to teach you that the government is bad or, or, um, you know, this doesn't mean that there aren't employees in the system that will teach you the opposite. But I never read anything about by John Taylor Gatto in, in the public school system. I never I still haven't. I, didn't, I don't yeah. know who that is. Who oh, the hell is a, that? He wrote the underground history of American education and talks right. about how uh, we got our compulsory education system in the U.S. from Prussia, which is modern day Germany. And Prussia's whole argument for compulsory education laws were to create obedient soldiers for the army and to create uh, well subordinated clerks to industry. So it's all this, it's, it's all be about this factory model of schooling that we have in the U S and the history of it. So I would recommend it for everyone to go check out uh, Don, John Taylor Gatto's book on this. And he has a couple of them and he recently passed away. I wish he was still with us, but he's a genius in this um, uh, just going over the history of the factory model of schooling and how it could uh, do a lot of harm. I mean, look, we still see a lot of remnants of that in our public school system today that, uh, a lot of it seems to be about obedience training. Um, you're supposed to just sit there uh, and listen for hours and hours a day to the authority figure. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot all about memorization and regurgitating information. We could all tell you that uh, we all we all learn that A squared plus B squared equals C squared. And we all memorize uh, mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell. I, I was going to bring this up. <laughs> you, you have a real beef with mitochondria. <laughs> well, look, it, it, this could be beneficial information, but that we remember like that we all still remember like little things like this mm-hmm. goes to show you that it was just more about memorization and, and not so much and regurgitating that information on standardized tests, which it could be useful tidbits of information. But like, if I need that information, I could look it up today. And if I'm interested in that, and if I go into that field, I can go and look it up today and learn. And if I need to do, do, do so. And like, I, I think the unschoolers really have it right here that the best way to get an education is to decouple education from schooling and to just learn just like you would any other uh, time of your life. Like Lou, if you want to learn something after we get off this podcast, you can look it up. You can uh, look it up on the internet. You can watch videos about it. You can ask a friend about it who, who has information about it. You can read a book. You don't go through a 13-year uh, public school system uh, and, and just sit there and, and listen to people kind of preach to you and have, have you memorize things on tests. And the same thing with um, uh, before you hit the age of five, before we enter kindergarten, the way that we learn is through experiences and we mm-hmm. learn based on our interests. Uh, I've always said that uh, just imagine if we uh, compelled people to send their kids to school starting at the age of six months. 
everybody would start to go around thinking that schooling was necessary to learn how to walk. Mm-hmm. Similarly, we learn a lot. We learn some things in schools, and so, so a lot of people start to think that well, if we didn't have schools that were compelled, we wouldn't learn how to do math. We wouldn't learn how to read. But I'm. <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure we would if you look at the, you know, the, the evidence on homeschooling and unschoolers and just, just, just thinking about how people actually learn. Mm-hmm. It's through when you're interested in something. Whereas through the traditional school model, a lot of it is they tell you, oh, well, this period between this bell and this bell, you better be interested in this particular thing, math. And then in this particular time of day, you, you, you must be interested in English, but not just English. You better be interested in Shakespeare today. And if you're not actually interested in it, you may still memorize stuff, but you're not going to retain that information and actually and, uh, and use I, yeah, it. Yeah, and I think it comes down to, you know, um, I, I, was, I guess I was fortunate within the system in that I was able to excel within the system. I was, it, it worked for me. Uh, it didn't work for, you know, for a lot of other people. And even just looking at something like, like, learning, a new, like learning a new language. We do this really stupid thing where, you know, you don't start learning a new language until maybe middle school into high school. So, you know, you walk away and you have like six years of French, but you don't speak French. Meanwhile, it's like if they were if we were doing it right. I mean, you know, even with the system as we have it now, if we were doing it right, it's like your kid goes in, you know, kindergarten, you're going to start speaking French like that, like, you know, doing it early on. So it's even something where is so something that's so obvious, you know, you can't even change that. Yeah, I had uh, three years of um, Spanish in my uh, magnet school, which, you know, right after I left um, high school and when I traveled to other countries, I thought it was cool to use a little bit of the Spanish, but uh, don't ask me to do it on the podcast today hmm. because I've lost a lot of it, right? right. Just because I'm not using it. But, uh, you know, I, I mean, yeah, I think the science is pretty clear. If you learn language at a younger age, you're, go- you're more likely to just retain it and, and, and keep it. So, hmm. It's weird that we have a lot of these programs in high school for people to learn these other languages. And yeah. like, since it's such a behemoth of a system, it's really inflexible to changes to that system. So even though we all know like it would be better to do it earlier, you have people that have jobs that are currently at this grade level and this grade level. Mm. You have jo- you know, schools that are, have their curriculum set up in a particular way. And since you, it's really hard to adapt with this huge regulated public school system that you know, it might not even be an incentives problem. I, I talk a lot about how the public schools might not have a strong incentive to do a good job, but they even when they do have a good incentive in place, they still might have trouble just based on bureaucracy and red tape. Right. Um, before we go, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, in your journey to get where you are, you know, today, uh, what's like, you know, one of the things that you wish you had learned in, in school or that that you... Um, had been, you know, exposed to? Yeah, it's tough. I, I wish, um, you know, <laughs> you know, I always look back at my K through 12 experience and I wish I, I didn't buy the, the myth that, um, you know, if you get good grades in high school, then you'll, you'll get your way into a great uh, college. And then if you get your way into the great college, you're going to be rich, right? <laughs> That's kind of the myth that everybody sold. And so I was really obedient when it came to K through 12. I did everything I was asked of me and I uh, excelled. I, I did a really good job in the public school system. But um, looking back, I wish I wasn't so obedient. I think that, you know, obedience could be good to a certain degree um, when it comes to following the law, if it's a just law, you know, and, and, and not, you know, ending up in the criminal justice system. And, uh, you know, it could lead to you know, just better social interactions with people. If you're, if you're, if you uh, care about what, what they, what they tell you is, is a good thing to do. But uh, I think it can get bad to a sense where it, it leads to kind of this um, uh, lack of creativity and, 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 and leads to more at the expense of conformity. So I think I've broken away from that, but I wish um, I knew more about like, that the, it isn't so important to do exactly every single thing that the teacher tells you. And I actually wish that I was able to participate in the homeschooling thing. And I, I would uh, like to point out to, to families to look more into homeschooling and unschooling and, and to re-envision the factory model of education. And I think a lot of people are doing that right now because a lot of people got a taste of homeschooling in some way or another because mm-hmm. the school's closed. Uh, but um, yeah, that's, that's something I wish I kind of, thought more about before. And, and yeah, I, I think, um, 
really pushing people to learn outside of the school system because there's so much that they didn't teach us in school, yeah. right? Uh, and I mostly started to learn all this stuff in college, but even like it wasn't even mostly in the college classes. It was outside doing my own reading on my own time. So really push people to follow their interest instead of what's being told uh, to them and, and what they should be interested in because a yeah. lot of the things that are most important are based on your own interest. Yeah, I used to, um, I remember in the first grade, I used to get so nervous for tests that I wanted to do so great on these tests that I used to piss my pants. But I used to, you know, and it's not like I had, I didn't have like a tiger mom or a tiger dad or whatever who was like, you better, you know, do, it, this was my own, this is my own thing, my own neuroses that I, that I put on myself. So I, um, maybe I wish I, that I hadn't pissed myself so much. Um, but, uh, Corey DeAngelis, I want to tell you, um, I, I didn't piss myself during this, this whole thing, but if I did, I think it would be worth it because I really enjoyed, okay. I really enjoyed our conversation, man. Um, Corey DeAngelis, he's keeping, he's keeping educators. He's keeping the system honest on Twitter. Uh, please go check him out and please, uh, read, a read his new book. If you want to hold that up uh, one more time, there we go. School choice myths. Awesome. And I'm going to, yes. All right, brother. Thanks so much, Lou. And you're going to have to be laughing for hours after this now. (laughs) Everybody go check out Lou's uh, comedy, by the way, too. (laughs) Thank you, man.